Hi, I'm Chow Tu, and welcome to the third Slate Plus episode for Slow Burn Season 7, which is covering the lead-up to Roe v. Wade. In these member-exclusive episodes, we'll hear from the Slow Burn team about the making of the show, and then we'll hear some interviews that will expand upon the themes and stories covered in the series. So in today's episode, we're going to hear from Slate's Christina Cotarucci and Mark Joseph Stern about how abortion rights could and is already changing across different states. But first, let's hear about episode three of this season. I have here with me Slowburn host Susan Matthews and also Sol Worthen, who has been producing on this season. Hey there, you two. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Chow. Thanks for having us. Hi, Chow. Of course. So I actually want to start off this episode by getting a little bit more in depth into what it's like to make Slowburn. So, so far, we've had a different producer on each week with Susan, and today we have Sol. Um, Sol, I'm wondering if you can like run us through what it's like working on the show. So can you go through like what the process is like for the whole team to put together an episode? Yeah. So at the beginning, we kind of divided and conquered and each person did uh, research on an episode and was kind of the point person for that since we had four episodes and four main people working on it. And so at the beginning, I was mainly doing research for this episode and going through the archives, trying to track down sources, reading on newspapers.com. But there is always, you know, kind of collaboration. And if there's a specific task that requires all hands on deck, people will shift gears pretty commonly. And so maybe it's like, okay, we have this lead that we're trying to follow. Everyone is kind of stopping what they're doing for the moment and trying to find out what they can about that specific thing. And then now that we are further along in the process and we're not in kind of the initial information gathering and research and interview stage, it's a lot more everyone is kind of working on an episode at a time. So doing fact checking, doing any last minute notes or edits. But yeah, it's just a lot of research. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So then one important thing that I want to know is that we on Slowburn do fact checking. That's really important. So that seems pretty intensive. I've seen some of the scripts Yes, all the hundreds of footnotes for every episode. And basically, we go line by line and have to go back and make sure that we got all the information right. And that means going back to the books or the archival audio or the newspaper clippings or interviews to make sure that, yeah, everything didn't get lost in translation as it was going through this process to get to the final edited script. So, And then, yes, we put footnotes for everything. So all the scripts will have just so many different page markings on them between notes for producers and then the fact-checked notes. So, Yeah, I have to say one thing that when I first saw a finished slow burn script, like before I started writing my own, I just asked for some examples and I got one from Josh's season and it was footnoted. And I like kind of screamed and was like, ah! am I supposed to do this as I write? Like, I've never done this before. And I totally imagined, like, of course, Josh Levine would write his scripts and footnote them along the way. Like, he's he edits the show. He hosted season four. And he's just, like, the most meticulous person. Um, so that is not what happens. Sol and Sophie are doing that <laughs> um, in, the, in the background. Um, but I wanted to say one more thing just about how we make the show, which is that 
before even writing the episodes, like one of the things that we spent so much time on, we were like surfacing all these stories and we had a bunch of them when we were, we basically, it felt like a puzzle to me in some ways. Like we knew that Shirley Wheeler was going to be its own episode, but from there we had a lot of different options for different things. And so we just had so many meetings and conversations where we were like, okay, well we have this Michigan story, like where do we want to put it? Do we think it pairs with Connecticut because they're both states? Do we think it actually pairs with the Wilkies because Jack Wilkie came in later? Like the figuring out the flow and like the puzzle and like how do we construct these so that the season is going somewhere is also something that takes so much time. And it's fascinating because we got to the point where there were all of these linkages and characters that popped up in one episode that then had some through line to a later episode. You know, Judge Newman is in episode three, but then obviously his work informs uh, Harry Blackman in episode four. And there are things like that where these characters and these events do kind of intertwine and you have to figure out how to construct it. So you have these lines that are kind of running parallel, but do intersect and and keeping them going forward and not just circling back is important too. Yeah, like Nancy Stearns pops up again in this episode. Exactly. Can I say something about that? The funny thing about that is that I tracked down Nancy Stearns because I knew that she was Shirley Wheeler's lawyer. And I emailed her and we got on the phone. And I said that I explained what I was doing. And I said why I wanted to talk to her. And she just kind of smiled and said, okay, I can talk to you about that. But the real reason that you should talk to me for this series is because of the work that I did on this Connecticut lawsuit and the lawsuit that she started in New York. (laughs) And I was like, Huh, noted. (laughs) I went back and looked those up and was like, yeah, those seem uh, pretty relevant. And now it's a whole episode. (laughs) So is that how you got into this this story? It seems obviously that this case was very important, but it's a case I've never heard about before. Yeah, I had read about it a little bit. Reva Siegel and Linda Greenhouse have this great book before Roe that has a lot of like primary source documents in it too. And so I had read about this case in that. I knew what Nancy was talking about when she said that, but the way that she described it, she basically explained, we went to court and we won. And then the governor came back and said, no, no, the fetus has rights. And so we had to win again. She described it as like illustrating this seesaw of something that I thought was definitely happening in this period. And I was kind of looking for the right way to both set up the Supreme Court case that we're going to hear about in the last episode. And I really wanted to kind of bring both sides in to this episode as well. Like we kind of start with Shirley Wheeler and then we go to the Wilkies. And I kind of wanted to have a little bit of balance in this episode. So that was one of the reasons that I was interested in it. Yeah. I mean, there's so much like kind of back and forth with this case, right? And I think it's pretty thrilling in how it's told. But I'm curious, so like when you're kind of doing this research and helping out with this episode, like what were sort of your main sources for nailing down this narrative? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I also had not heard of this case and there is not a lot published about it. The Before Roe book has some really good primary source information on it, but it was pretty hard to track information down in academic texts or other like newspaper, like contemporary stories. And so a lot of it was going back into newspapers.com and just seeing everything that I could find that was written contemporaneously about the case. And there was a lot of coverage of it in the Connecticut press at the time. And so then it was putting together the timeline from all these different newspaper stories and seeing how it fit together and going down the rabbit holes and seeing what else there was. But it was basically the 
starting point, you know, the name of the court case is interesting because if you look up Abley versus Markle or Abley versus Markle, which is the official name of the court case, there is like nothing there. And so trying to figure out, okay, how do I actually find this? How are people talking about this at the time? And it was all around women versus Connecticut was how the case was referred to in the press and by people at the time. And then basically just looking up anything I could find on women versus Connecticut, abortion law, abortion hearings, and kind of going down the rabbit holes from there and and chasing leads, things that were mentioned in a newspaper article in 1971 and seeing what else I could find from that. And then there was also a uh, public broadcasting documentary that was made in the 90s called The Roots of Roe. And it was about reproductive rights and abortion contraception throughout American history, starting very early, but with a special emphasis on Connecticut. And I thought that was really interesting because one of the arguments that the documentary makes is that Connecticut as a state kind of has this outsized role in the story of reproductive rights in America. Hmm. And, you know, that's the case with Griswold, which is the case that precedes Roe that gives the right for contraception. Obviously, uh, Women versus Connecticut kind of sets up Roe v. Wade in some ways. And then even today, I think, you know, after I read or watched that documentary, that kind of thesis has stuck with me. And so our colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, wrote an article recently about how Connecticut is one of the kind of states on the vanguard in terms of protecting abortion rights in Mm -hmm. a potential post-Roe future. Uh, So I thought that that was a really interesting way to think about it, that this state has this through line uh, where these issues of reproduction and abortion are continuing to pop up in the state. This is a little bit of a tangent, but you talking about this documentary soul reminded me that I'd heard that you listened to like the Wilkies on vinyl. This is related to episode two. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) A fantastic task given to soul. (laughs) I mean, it was very interesting. So the Wilkies have their sex education lectures and they have a vinyl recording of their publication, The Wonder of Sex. And so I, I listened to the whole thing. Um, and it, it's really fascinating because it kind of, it toggles between things that feel very progressive and modern. And they say that sex is not something that should be kind of seen as sinful or something to be ashamed of or kept hush-hush, but that parents should talk to their children quite frankly about sex. And that in the, you know, narrow confines that they're talking about of a monogamous heterosexual marriage, that it's like beautiful and powerful. And they have a section where they talk about how breastfeeding should be something that is celebrated and not something that is kind of kept away and not something that women should do in public, but something, you know, that if the baby is eating, that is a positive thing. And and if the human, if the adults are in the room eating, that the baby should also get to eat. And kind of saying that the way that the previous generations have thought about sex is quite regressive. And then they'll flip and talk about these things that 
kind of come out of left field. So there's a whole section about kind of the dangers of teenagers being allowed to have cars and that cars can facilitate this underage uh, premarital sex because they're basically mobile motels. And so they, they have this whole thing about, you know, we don't think that teenagers should be able to have uh, kind of unrestricted access to cars, that it'll lead them down this road where they'll have premarital sex, their grades will suffer. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating kind of you're, you'll be nodding along at some parts and then be like, whoa, wait, <laughs> this is not something that was on my radar is something <laughs> that was a problem. <laughs> was it more like audiobook or like lecture? It was kind of like a lecture okay. and it's You'll hear in episode two, they they do have this wonderful back and forth where there is this kind of folksy showmanship where the two of them bounce off of each other in a, in a really compelling way. And they clearly have thought about this and, and talked about it extensively. And they just kind of flow together really nicely um, in a way that is, yeah, compelling as a listener, even if when I'm listening, I'm like, I don't think I agree with this. <laughs> Right. Okay, let's go back to episode three. Um, Susan, I really want to hear more about what it was like to interview Anne Hill for this episode. Yeah, so as the name Women versus Connecticut implies, there were a lot of women involved in this episode. And so we had this list of names and I got connected to someone who connected me to someone like I was kind of passed through these women who are still in touch. And I got to Anne Hill. I emailed her to set up the phone call. And her response to my email was something along the lines of, I spent thousands of hours of my life on Women versus Connecticut. I would wow. love to talk to you about it. <laughs> and I was just like, all right. The perfect guest. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got on the phone with her and her memories were so vivid and her stories were so vivid. But most importantly, she is like the most charming person in the universe to me. The way that she talks, the energy that she brought, like as soon as I got off the phone with her the first time before we even recorded anything, I was just like, this is my main character. This is the star of this episode. She told me that story about getting that abortion in the Upper West Side the very first time that we talked. And I just could tell like she had this drive inside of her about this. Yeah. So when someone has such a great memory like that about what happens, how do you corroborate that with your own research? You know, like everyone's memories are not always reliable or correct. People remember stuff incorrectly all the time. So how do you reconcile that across different interviews or like, you know, newspapers.com. Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you one case where we just ended up not addressing it in the show, but it's really funny to me. One of the memories that Anne has that is so strong is that while she was waiting for the judges to decide in this case, there were women who signed on as plaintiffs who got pregnant and wanted abortions and like wanted to be told that they could get a legal abortion while the case was pending. And so Anne remembers going to talk to Judge Newman and getting him to do something called a TRO. It's an acronym for something that I'm not remembering right now, but it's basically- Temporary restraining order. There you go. This is this is what Sol does. <laughs> Temporary restraining order. And like getting this all these permissions for these women to get their abortions while the case was pending. And Anne had this whole little like funny narrative about how she was doing this and she was going to Judge Newman every time and she was trying to figure out how he was going to rule based on how he responded to her when she was going in to do this. And I asked Judge Newman about it. And as you can tell from the episode, Judge Newman is still a practicing judge. He remembers the reasoning in this case so incredibly well. He articulated it so well. Like he, his memory was excellent. 
And so I asked him about that, assuming that he would be like, oh, my God, Anne Hill, she was so annoying. <laughs> or like that he would say something right. about it. And she, he was like, maybe I did that once. I don't really remember. So in that circumstance, like that was kind of like a funny little anecdote that like maybe we would have made into something if we had good tape from both people remembering it. I don't know. I haven't like made an assessment of who I think is right. I kind of feel like because it was such a powerful memory for Anne, I feel like it was probably just pretty routine for Judge Newman. And he just didn't remember it because he did things like that all the time. And for Anne, it was actually significant. So like that's one of the things that we're always figuring out like, okay, why do you remember it this way? Why do you remember this so well? Like, how do we figure that out? In this show, we had so much material that we didn't ultimately use that. But it is definitely true that we are constantly trying to reconcile people's memory with the historical record. We actually, Soul had kind of pulled together some of the clips that we had found from newspapers.com that we shared with some of our sources before we interviewed them just to kind of like give them a little refresher because it's true that it was 50 years ago and you know this case had a lot of twists and turns so yeah so let's talk about what it was like to talk to judge newman (laughs) honestly i'm almost embarrassed to say this but i will say it i did not even imagine that any of these judges were still alive Like, I hadn't even added them to the list of possible sources. And then I was talking to Jim Robinault, who appears on the next episode, actually. He's in the fourth episode, and he wrote this book called January 1973. And I was kind of talking to him and saying, you know, this is what we think our episodes are going to be. This is where I think that, you know, I'd want to interview you. And he asked me if I had talked to Judge Newman. And I was like, no, what? Judge Newman is still alive. And he was like, yeah, he's still on the bench. Like, you should call him. And I literally called him that afternoon and left him a voicemail and he called me back. So that was just like an incredibly exciting moment. And it's so exciting in particular because the justices that were on the Supreme Court bench when they decided Roe, none of those justices are still alive. And so we knew that we weren't going to get that direct perspective and to get it from Judge Newman. And I think in particular, I think that Judge Newman does this in the episode is he explains like the idea of viability as sort of a compromise position. And I really think that that's how the justices saw it too. So I think it's really interesting to hear a judge kind of laying out why that made sense as a standard in this time. Yeah, so that subject of viability is going to be something that is going to be pretty important in the next couple of weeks with the stop decision and any decision coming up about Roe. So I'm curious, and this is for both of you, but Susan, you can start. What are your thoughts after researching this history and, you know, this decision making now that it's going to be an important part of a Supreme Court decision coming up in our present world? The thing that I didn't know about Roe going into this was the way in which the people who decided it really did think of it as a compromise position and the way in which the people who are against abortion really did not think of it as a compromise position. So I think that that was something that I feel like I've really internalized during this process. And to go back to Jim Robinall, actually, one of the things that he asked me that I thought was interesting is that he kind of said, like, well, if you are going to have abortion, like you have to put the marker somewhere, like, where do you think it should be? And he kind of has this theory that if it was a little bit earlier, it wouldn't have caused all this outrage. And the fact that it's so late 
when Roe was originally decided, the point of viability was basically at the end of the second trimester. It was at 28 weeks. But that lateness within a pregnancy was one of the things that gave the pro-life side so much ammunition. You kind of see that in episode two with the fetal photographs. So I think that what I'm like anticipating and waiting for and thinking about with Dobbs is they're going to try to draw the line somewhere else. Well, I think that that's actually what I thought before the Supreme Court leak. I thought that they were going to try to draw the line somewhere else. I thought that it was going to be 15 weeks. That's the line that is proposed by Dobbs. Um, And that was what I was kind of assuming. And the thing that I was really curious about was what was the legal reasoning going to be for that? Because say what you will about the Roe decision, they certainly put the work into providing an explanation of why they're drawing the line where they do. They also say... It's impossible to draw a line. Nobody knows when life begins. We're justices. We're not gods. Like, we aren't the ones who determine that. But we're going to try anyway. So I had been really waiting for that and to try to unpack the reasoning in that and try to see if they were tracing it to anything else that we had found in our in our research. And now it seems like if Justice Alito's opinion basically stands, they're not going to do that. And so I think that that'll be really interesting to just kind of see if that standard totally melts away. Yeah. And I think what was so striking to me in the women versus Connecticut case, to go back to Susan's earlier point about the TROs, but just that in this time before abortion was legal in Connecticut, that basically there were judges not making decisions on the level of a state's population, but literally case by case making decisions about individual women and whether or not they would be able to get abortions. So one of the cases was this 16-year-old given the pseudonym Patricia Poe, and she was seeking an abortion during the time that the Women versus Connecticut suit was going on. And these judges, Newman and Clary and Lombard, basically were, you know, making the decision individually, can Patricia Poe get an abortion? And then these other women, can Susan Rowe get an abortion? Can Peggy Poe get an abortion? And it's so striking to think these things that we take for granted, no matter where the lines are, you know, that then is out of the judge's hands. But even in these cases in Connecticut, you know, they're then this very granular patronizing, you know, can this single person get an abortion? And thinking about how that, yeah, that's not something I had ever considered might be the case with this rollback or this further kind of restriction of abortion rights. We kind of have maybe taken for granted to some extent that if you fall within whatever the kind of limits are, if it's viability, if it's 15 weeks, then you have the kind of decision-making power with you and your doctor to do it. But then in a case like Connecticut, where basically it's completely banned, except in the case of saving the life of the mother, that to do it, you have to basically put your medical history at the mercy of these judges. Um, So that was so shocking to me. I think that's such a nice point. There's like a very specific intimacy. Yes, in this episode between women's experience and the court. I mean, we talk all the time about, you know, these decisions, they affect actual lives, but there's something specific about how this case played out and what the women tried to do and why that like really is trying to underscore how intimate the decisions that judges make 
are to to women's lives. We tried to demonstrate that in this episode. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Women versus Connecticut, as you've shown in this episode, was a very big case that decided abortion rights in one state. But now for the rest of this episode, we're actually going to hear more about how different state laws are going to become extremely important if Roe v. Wade falls this year. So Susan, you interviewed Slate's own senior writers, Christina Cotarucci and Mark Joseph Stern. Um, they've both been doing a lot of like incredible and in-depth and crucial reporting on the state of abortion rights in America. They told us more about how much things could and are already changing state by state for women all across the country. So we're going to listen to that discussion now. Hi, Mark. Hi, Christina. I'm so happy to have you here for this Slate Plus episode of Slow Burn. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. So much of what I've been doing when I've been researching this time period has been thinking about and looking at what is it like when various states in the United States of America have dramatically different abortion laws? I have definitely gotten a little bit of insight into what that was like before we had Roe v. Wade, but I wanted to talk to both of you because of how much work you're both doing to report out and write about what that's actually like right now. So I wanted to start by talking about the fact that even though there's been so much more attention paid to abortion rights and abortion access this year in particular, like the situation that abortion access is really different state by state has been true for a very long time. Yes? Absolutely. It's always been true. And especially over the last couple of decades after the Supreme Court really loosened the constitutional standard for abortion restrictions in 1992, the Supreme Court said, we're not going to apply really strict scrutiny to these abortion laws anymore. We're just going to ask if they create an undue burden on abortion access, which is a largely undefined and malleable term. And so the reality is that at least since 1992, Roe has not existed on the ground in much of America. There have been broad stretches of the country where you simply could not access legal abortion unless you had the means to travel sometimes for days, hundreds of miles, sometimes have to go to multiple appointments because of all of these waiting periods, mandatory counseling laws. And even before Texas outlawed virtually all abortions this fall, there were a handful of states that had just one clinic remaining that was performing or prescribing abortion. And if you didn't live close to that one clinic, say in, in North Dakota, where there was just a single clinic right on the border, if you didn't live close to that, you were essentially living in a state with no legal abortion access. States have also cracked down on telemedicine for abortion so that you can't legally get these pills in the mail. It's just a really bad situation. And so I, I don't want to uh, downplay how horrible it will be in many red states after Roe formally falls. But I do think that it would be unwise to pretend as though we're living in this wonderful era of abortion access right now and have been for years. So things are about to get much worse, but they are already really bad in much of the country. 
The other part of this story is the Hyde Amendment, which is a federal law that's been in place since 1980. And every Congress since then has renewed it. It basically says that you can't use federal funds for abortion. So what that means is that unless a state specifically uses state funds, or in the case of DC, local funds, people who rely on Medicaid for their medical care can't get abortions unless they have hundreds of dollars to shell out for pills or a procedure. That means that private donations have had to step in to fund abortion care for low-income patients, which again means that abortion isn't accessible for somebody who doesn't live in a state that provides Medicaid coverage for abortion or that doesn't have access to a fund or a private source of money to pay for their abortion. Yeah. Before we get into kind of what's been happening more recently, I just wanted to ask, given all of that, do you have a sense of how people on the ground actually feel like that's going to lead us to a situation in which everybody's going to say Roe has fallen, everything is going to be different. But for so many people, their lived reality is going to be exactly the same as it was. And I think that to me, that feels a little bit more like a political problem than anything else. But I'm just curious how we think like it just hasn't felt like an emergency until more recently, but it has been an emergency. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that it's going to be exactly the same for people. The biggest difference is that abortion wasn't criminalized in these places. Right. So if you were able to get an abortion or if you had a miscarriage or, you know, had a fetal anomaly, you were able to get an abortion if you were able to access a clinic or the pills that could in some places be sent through the mail. And what I don't want is people to look at the current state of abortion rights and access, which isn't great, but is certainly better than what it will be, and say, oh, you know, when Roe falls some people won't even notice. There actually will be a big difference for everybody in every state, including people in states that have a lot of clinics and that will retain uh, legal abortion care. Because when people from other states start rushing into those clinics, it's going to be much harder to get an appointment. And we're already seeing the effects of the few strict abortion bans that have come into place within the past couple months. Yeah. In particular, Christina, I wanted to talk to you about SBA in Texas, which has basically been allowed to be in effect since it was passed in September. That's the bill that outlaws abortion after six weeks, which you're going to explain, I think, is not not even like six weeks and criminalizes everybody who assists with any kind of an abortion after that. So you went to Texas recently and reported from there. And so I wanted to give you the chance to just kind of talk us through some of these ripple effects of things that are happening as a result of these bills that seem to be like totally outside of the intention of them. Right. So one of the immediate impacts that people who worked at this clinic saw, and I went to a clinic uh, in Houston, was patients were coming in before they even had a positive pregnancy test. So it wasn't just people who were seeking abortions who were experiencing extreme stress and distress over this abortion ban. It was anybody who could get pregnant. There was a fear that they were going to catch their pregnancy too late and then not be able to have an abortion at all. The other part of this is that Yes, the Texas law only prohibits abortions performed after fetal cardiac activity shows up, but abortion providers 
can't or in most cases won't provide an abortion or prescribe pills until they can see the fetus on an ultrasound because otherwise you might have a positive pregnancy test, but it could be an ectopic pregnancy, meaning that the pregnancy has embedded somewhere other than the uterus. It's a very dangerous situation that needs to be identified and addressed. Otherwise, the patient could die. So clinics will wait until they can affirm that it's a pregnancy in the uterus. And there's like a week-long window between when they can see a pregnancy on an ultrasound and when cardiac activity begins. For some patients, it's even less than that. So maybe it's five days in which a patient can get an abortion. Within those five days, there has to be a 24-hour waiting period between when the patient comes in for counseling and when they can actually get their pills or their procedure. So, you know, people call it a six-week ban, but first of all, six weeks of pregnancy is actually only two weeks after a missed period, and patients are feeling rushed. Understandably, the clinicians that I spoke to said they normally saw people around six to eight weeks of pregnancy, um, and they only provide abortions up to 10 weeks at this clinic because they only provide medication abortions. Now they're seeing patients come in much earlier, but they haven't had the chance to really think about what they want to do about their pregnancy. For some people, it's a very easy and quick decision to make. But for a lot of other people, they'd only come into the clinic after they had spent some time thinking about what it means to them, maybe talking to a parent, a loved one, a partner. Some people talk to their you know, faith leaders in their communities because it's not an easy decision for everybody. The majority of patients and the majority of abortion patients nationwide already have kids. Um, so a lot of these people are trying to figure out, can I afford another child? Can I fit another child into my life right now? But now they know that if they don't get it within that you know, week-long window or five-day window, they might not be able to get an abortion at all. So they're actually seeing uh, quite a few people experiencing regret afterwards, which was extraordinarily rare before. And, and there are several studies that have shown that abortion regret is very rare, in part because people know it's an important decision and take the time to think about what they want to do before they go ahead and visit a clinic. When you think about what it means to have states with different abortion laws, I think there's a narrative that's been highly reported on since Texas instated this law about patients traveling outside the state to get abortion care. But the clinic I visited, they actually quoted one woman who had said, not only can I not afford to you know, buy a plane ticket, you could pay for me to take your private jet that would pick me up at my house, take me to Oklahoma, get my abortion and come back. And I still couldn't do it because I have kids and I'm, you know, the sole breadwinner, the sole child care provider. And what am I going to do to take, you know, 24 to 48 hours to go get an abortion somewhere else? Not to mention, a lot of people don't want to tell anybody that they're getting an abortion. So that was a really dire situation that I found when I went down to Texas. And that was before Oklahoma banned all abortions. So that was the main place that they were sending patients, and that's no longer an option. And were all of the people who are coming into the clinic that you visited, were they aware of SB8? The majority of them were. Clinicians who worked there said at the beginning, you know, in September 2021, when it first took effect, they were often the first people to inform patients of the law. But they said... It took about a month, maybe a month and a half for people to learn about it and then also to adapt, which is when they started seeing patients come in super early. But they still felt like 
they were the enforcers of this law. So the law is really weird in that it's enforced by private lawsuits. So Mm -hmm. uh, the reasons why providers aren't providing abortions aren't because the state will, you know, put them in jail, but because people could sue them. Anybody in Texas could sue anybody who helps anybody get an abortion for $10,000 or more. So the providers, you know, even if the patient learned about the law, it's up to them to say, sorry, you're too far along. Or I know you thought that you were only five weeks pregnant, but actually we did the ultrasound. Here's the cardiac activity. We're so sorry, but we can't help you here. And these are people who got into this work. All of them were extremely values driven. Everyone who worked there Many of them had had abortions themselves and really felt that that was a powerful experience for them. So they wanted to be able to help others. They've been working at abortion clinics for years. Many of them had started by volunteering. And now they're being forced, you know, every single day to turn people away and sort of be the face of this law for patients who are in extremely desperate situations much of the time. That early in pregnancy, in order to actually see the fetus on an ultrasound and detect potential cardiac activity, typically a clinic has to use a transvaginal probe. It can't use the kind of ultrasound that you see on TV where it's the on the belly with the jelly. It's actually a very intrusive and sometimes painful procedure that patients have to undergo. And I, I just think it shows how far we've shifted here because uh, it was barely a decade ago that our colleague Dolly Lithwick blew the whistle on this Virginia abortion restriction that was going to require that patients undergo a transvaginal ultrasound before terminating a pregnancy. Now this is going on in much of the country, not just in states that have these six-week bans, but others that are trying to move the line back further and further and requiring ultrasounds that detect specific aspects of fetal development. And we've all decided to sort of shrug our shoulders. And I just think it's really tragic that the outrage that we felt around the country during the brouhaha over Virginia's transvaginal probe law was not sustained and has not carried through to today. And we've become so inured to these abortion restrictions that such a grotesque intrusion on bodily autonomy is easy to shrug off. And they actually have to do two. One, the first time the patient comes in to ensure that they're eligible for an abortion. And then another, when they come back the next day to make sure cardiac activity hasn't begun within that 24 hours, which sometimes it does. That's an unimaginable thing to to think about. Mark, there hasn't been uh, one of these lawsuits filed, one of the like kind of bounty seeking lawsuits filed in, in Texas, as far as I understand, under SBA yet. Is that correct? So, There was an effort to create a kind of test case that quickly deflated. I would say there has not been a real and meaningful lawsuit filed under SB8 that is actually designed to stop abortion or collect damages from a clinic. Why do you think that is? And when do you think we'll see one that does feel real? I think it's because the law had such a powerful chilling effect that its actual enforcement became unnecessary. As Christina reported, a lot of abortion clinics just shut their doors or stopped providing any kind of abortion care after SB8 passed because they were terrified of getting pummeled with lawsuits, which could just force them into almost immediate bankruptcy and potentially trigger some kind of state investigation down the road. And so these clinics decided we're 
just going to do everything we can to comply with this outrageous law and have done so. And that has, I think, warded off potential lawsuits because this was really how I think the architects of that statute envisioned it working, that it would chill the exercise of a constitutional right to such a degree that all of this crazy litigation that it allows would be almost gratuitous because clinics would be too afraid to violate its terms. And I guess that what I wanted to talk about next, I mean, you started to hint at this, Christina, a little bit when you were talking about, well, this has started in Texas and women were going to clinics in Oklahoma. It's just over the border. And now Oklahoma has passed this law. I just wanted you both to have the opportunity to answer why it's not enough to say abortion will still be legal in some places in America. What's the extent of these laws and what are we facing if Dobbs comes down the way that we're expecting it to? So just to put this in perspective, there are about 800,000 abortions provided a year in the U.S. You know, that's a loose estimate. Of course, there are many people whose abortions aren't counted. But let's just say 800,000 a year is how many abortions are successfully obtained in the U.S. Some people, of course, would like an abortion and aren't able to access one. About half of U.S. states are set to ban abortion or severely restrict abortion almost as soon as Roe v. Wade falls. So, you know, conservatively, let's say one quarter of those abortions will have happened in states that will soon ban it. That's about 200,000 trips that those people would need to take out of state. That is a massive amount of money, of space available at abortion clinics, and of people required to facilitate that. So, you know, just as one example of the kinds of unforeseen challenges that patients seeking abortions might face, I recently spoken to a couple of clergy people who twice a month fly 20 patients out of Texas to New Mexico for an abortion and back the same day. Every trip that they take, there's at least one person who has never flown in a plane before, never been in an airport before. So to tell that person, well, you know, here's a check, go find your way to another abortion clinic. It's just not feasible. That aside, money that people have already funneled into Texas and Oklahoma in response to these bans to help people travel out of state, that money is already running out just as the need is about to spike. There's only so much money out there. I think there are a lot of places that are trying to come up with creative solutions. You know, there are some budget line items that are being passed in blue states and I know Whole Women's Health, which has a couple clinics in Texas and also clinics in Minnesota, Maryland, and Virginia, they're trying to make their clinics in those states expansive sort of sanctuaries for people who try to get an abortion in their clinic in Texas and can't to fly to, you know, they'll have someone meet them on the other end, take them to a hotel, sort of steer them through the process. But there's already a shortage of abortion providers in the U.S. And that sort of infrastructure just doesn't exist yet. And I think it'll take resources that I'm not sure we'll be able to marshal, certainly not in time for the immediate fall of Roe v. Wade, but um, even over the course of years, I think it's an insurmountable barrier for so many people who will want an abortion and not even know where to go to even get access to the kinds of funds that might be available for them. Yeah. And and it's not just that. Mark, can you talk us through the attempts to even criminalize like the attempt to go out of state for an abortion? 
Yeah, so this is really the next phase of the battle after Roe falls, and you can already see conservative lawyers and Republican lawmakers teeing it up. It's this effort to prohibit citizens of a red state from traveling elsewhere to terminate a pregnancy through a couple of different legal mechanisms, all of which are constitutionally iffy. But at this stage, it's really hard to guess what the Supreme Court will uphold because there's no clear definition of settled law anymore. It's all up for grabs. So there's some models and the architect of SB8, the Texas law, is is pushing this right now and is going to pass one of these laws in a city in Texas that would prohibit anyone in that city, in that jurisdiction, from traveling elsewhere to terminate a pregnancy and open up anyone who helps them terminate a pregnancy to civil liability. So right now, SB8 appears to only apply to abortions that happen within Texas. This model would expand that to abortions that happen anywhere. Someone in Texas, someone who's living in a jurisdiction where one of these laws gets passed, they say, I'm pregnant, I want to go to New Mexico to terminate this pregnancy. And if their husband helps to drive them across the border, that husband could be slapped with a lawsuit. The next phase of that is also criminal penalties. So bringing uh, potential felony charges against individuals who not only facilitate abortion, but who perform abortions out of state. So I think it's important to remember that these states are pushing full fetal personhood. I mean, the Georgia law would allow pregnant couples to write off fetuses on their tax returns as as dependent minors. Uh, And in states like Oklahoma, they are declaring that fetuses receive full due process and equal protection rights. And so the termination of a fetus is in fact a homicide under the law, a killing of, of a human being under the law. And you are not allowed to leave one state to go to another to kill somebody. And so the framework that's being set up here is that someone who travels to another state to terminate a pregnancy, they murdered a citizen of that state the fetus. They committed homicide against the unborn citizen of that jurisdiction and thus opened themselves up to all kinds of criminal penalties, as does the abortion provider, even if that provider adhered to the laws of the state in which they're practicing. And so we're starting to see some creative pushback here. Connecticut has passed this law that essentially allows anyone who faces these penalties from a red state to file a countersuit in Connecticut state court and bars Connecticut officials from investigating investigating abortion providers, from punishing providers and patients, as long as they comply with Connecticut law. But that's just one state. And there are a lot more that need to think creatively about this, because it's already very obvious that red state lawmakers are trying to reach far beyond their own borders to prohibit all abortion in America. They're not going to stop within their own state lines. And I just don't see Democratic lawmakers fully waking up to this reality when they need to very quickly, because this is all going to happen. I think pretty fast. I also want to point out that people living in blue states are going to be affected too. I mean, Louisiana is not a blue state, but just for an example of how this might play out, a lot of patients who live in East Texas have been traveling to Louisiana to get abortions because it's the closest state. The nearest clinic is only about four hours away. But patients in Louisiana now can't schedule their appointment for an abortion until, you know, a month out. And people don't want to stay pregnant for a month when they don't want to be pregnant. Not to mention if they only decide they want an abortion or they only catch their pregnancy when they're already pushing up against the legal limit. They don't have time to wait a month for an appointment. So the Texas clinic that I visited is actually seeing patients 
come from Louisiana to Texas if they catch their pregnancies early enough because they don't want to wait that long. So you can imagine what might happen in, let's say, Illinois, um, which is surrounded by states that may ban abortion if Roe falls. You can imagine a lot of patients there thinking that, you know, they're fine. They live in a state that doesn't criminalize abortion. Well, what happens when they're 14 weeks pregnant and need an abortion because they catch some sort of fetal anomaly incompatible with life and now have to wait an extra month in the middle of pregnancy carrying a fetus that will never survive? It's an incredible physical and emotional burden on people who may have a legal right but don't have the actual access to get the care that they need. Mm-hmm. There's been some discussion of this idea that like what's going to happen after Roe is that the federal government will pass a federal law that prohibits abortion. My sense of that is that like that's not going to happen. There's already the discrepancy in representation between, you know, the country and the federal government, but that's exaggerated so much further on the Supreme Court that that's not really something that we have to worry about, but I was curious what you thought about that and I was also just kind of curious to talk through like right now in this situation what are the th- things that blue states should be doing what are the things that the federal government could or should be doing like what are kind of the next steps of what should happen in the face of this scenario that you've both laid out so first of all I don't think that any kind of federal abortion bill will pass but if it did I am very certain that the Supreme Court would strike it down. The court has already built up this jurisprudence that bars the federal government from telling states that they have to protect or provide access to a certain right, usually in the realm of say voting rights or even gender violence issues like that. I am certain that the Supreme Court would strike down that law. Uh, I think that in terms of what the federal government can do, it really depends on how creative Biden and his people are and how far they're willing to kind of push the envelope. This is something that Trump was really good at, essentially (laughs) illegally spending all kinds of cash that Congress appropriated for other purposes or never appropriated because he knew that nobody would really be able to challenge it. The, The classic example is the border wall. Congress did not appropriate the money for the border wall. He spent it illegally. And yet the Supreme Court let it happen because they basically said nobody had standing to challenge it. And I think that if Biden Biden were bold, he could do the same thing with abortion. He could send abortion boats to Galveston, Texas, and be like, everyone who needs an abortion, the federal government has some boats, come on over, and we'll give them to you for free, and the federal government will pay for it. I mean, that would technically violate the Hyde Amendment and other, other laws, but according to the Supreme Court, if it were to be consistent, then that wouldn't matter. Of course, the fallacy here is assuming that this court is consistent, and I don't right. believe that it is, and I do believe that the court would probably find a way to strike that down as well. So I've said for a while, the solution here is court expansion or nothing at all on the federal level. On the state level, there's a lot that can be done. And we're seeing some mixed results, but more positive than negative. So I mentioned that Connecticut has passed this law to fight off lawsuits from red states that attempt to shut down their own clinics and punish their patients. We're also seeing states expand access to abortion by allowing more healthcare professionals to provide or prescribe it. So the unfortunate reality is that a lot of blue states had a kind of inertia on abortion for many decades. They had their laws in place. They were 
decently liberal. You could get an abortion if you needed one, but often they restricted it to only physicians. Uh, a very limited class of individuals within the healthcare system could provide these because in the 1970s, abortion was still a surgical procedure that was considered somewhat complicated. That has so completely changed. I mean, Christina taught me recently that a majority of abortion patients in the U.S. now take medication abortion. It does not require an MD to write a prescription for a medication abortion. Similarly, first trimester abortions, even when they're surgical, are really easy to perform. And I think most providers would tell you that. It is not a complicated procedure. It is something that anyone with training in that area could do, even if they're not an MD. And blue states are catching on to that. And so we are seeing a lot of states like Maryland, for instance, expand the number of healthcare professionals who can do that, who can not only prescribe, but also perform these procedures. So for instance, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, physicians assistants in blue states like Maryland, uh, those individuals are being trained to do this and, and are actually beginning to go out and perform them. So the hope there is that if blue states can't protect Roe nationwide, they can at least provide a kind of safe haven for patients from other states and uh, provide enough abortions that they will be able to take in the overflow of patients who are about to come in from red states. On the financial side of things, I know California and Oregon have set aside state funds to pay for abortions for people who come in from out of state, essentially trying to remove one of the several barriers that will now exist for people who want to come to one of these abortion sanctuary states. So, you know, when we're thinking about what the major needs will be, money is going to be uh, one of the biggest ones, because, you know, even if states aren't able to chase people across borders to prosecute them for having an abortion out of state, they don't have the money to leave the state. It's just never going to happen. Christina, do you have a sense of like on the grassroots side, what is being done or what could be done? There are a bunch of grassroots efforts that are sort of bubbling up in response to this moment. Abortion funds, which have always existed to raise money for people to have abortions who can't afford them. They've been ramping up other services. So basically serving people who are traveling across state lines. So they're acting as concierges. These are sometimes separate funds called practical support funds that help people find childcare, or hotel rooms, somebody to drive you from the airport to the clinic, somebody to make sure your hotel doesn't give you any trouble, um, basically being a friendly face in the place wherever you land. There are groups that are trying to publicize information about how to use abortion medication on your own. As Mark said, it's an incredibly safe medication and in fact, the restrictions around it were entirely political. I researched the history for the first time um, in depth a month or two ago for a piece that I wrote for Slate. And I mean, from the very beginning, from when it was first being studied in the 80s, it was clear that it was a very, very safe medication and effective for even longer than what it's approved for here in the U.S. So even you know, past 10 weeks, up to 11 weeks, sometimes even more than that. In Britain, it's used far later than that. But this is something that people can very easily do on their own at home. And there have been recently large studies comparing people who got information from a telemedicine appointment to people who actually went in and talked to their doctor and got an ultrasound and then got the medication. And they found that the results were exactly the same in terms of how effective it was and how few complications there were. So there are groups that are, you know, purchasing 
ads with the Plan C website, which shows you how to get pills online. There's an international organization that has historically provided through-the-mail abortion medication for people in countries that prohibit it. That's ramping up in the U.S. You know, they're seeing more and more patients from the states try to get their pills online. So I think that is going to be one of the things that really sets this post-Roe era apart from the pre-Roe era, because while the Internet exists, so information is, is just much more widely available and the ability to use medication instead of having a procedure from somebody who might not know what they're doing. I mean, Mark, you're right that it is a a simple procedure for somebody who knows what they're doing. But, you know, one of the reasons why Roe came down in the first place was because a lot of people were dying from unsafe abortions. I think that will continue to happen when Roe goes away. People in desperate circumstances will do anything to not be pregnant when they have a pregnancy that they don't want and can't have. But the grassroots efforts that I've seen that I'm most optimistic about are those information awareness campaigns about this abortion medication. So medication abortions are also fairly promising when it comes to a possible federal solution, at least when a Democrat is in the White House, because they are, of course, approved by the FDA. And there is a very strong argument that states cannot override the FDA's determination that these are legal and safe by criminalizing them within their state lines. This is a live issue. It will be litigated. Again, I really don't trust the Supreme Court to ever do the right thing on reproductive freedom. I think five justices will just crush abortion rights at every chance they get. But a creative president could attempt to use the FDA, the Postal Service, other means at at his disposal to get these pills to people in red states and to say, look, these states don't get to override the choices of, of the federal government. And I think we're about to wrap up. But what I wanted to ask you, Mark, is for our listeners who have heard this conversation and are now feeling just incredibly frustrated and depressed by the state of things, what would you tell them they can do? about this? So the number one thing, and Christina flicked at this, and I think it's exactly right, is that anyone who supports reproductive rights, anyone who says they support choice, they got to open up their damn wallets and tithe to abortion funds. You are not really pro-choice if you are sitting on your money and not giving some of that cash to abortion funds right now. You are, in fact, a hypocrite. This is the way forward for now, the way. Yes, there are other options and long-term solutions, and we've discussed a lot of them here, but right now, there are millions of people on the ground who need to travel elsewhere to get an abortion that they likely can't afford, and you need to help subsidize it, because otherwise they will not get that care, and their lives may well be ruined by an unwanted pregnancy. And so when I talk about this issue, and people inevitably ask, you know, what can I I do. I always say, I assume you're voting for pro-choice politicians. People do what they can or what they're used to doing. Maybe they have a NARAL bumper sticker on their car. Uh, Maybe they, they talk about how their daughter got an abortion and they're totally okay with it. But what they also need to do is get out their credit card and go online and give a ton of money to an abortion fund every single month. Because as Christina said, that money is drying up and we're about to need exponentially more of it to accomplish what reproductive rights advocates hope to accomplish in the wake of Roe's demise. So obviously there's all kinds of political action, but the number one thing that people are not quite used to doing, but need to start just participating in regularly is turning over their disposable income to the heroes on the ground who are facilitating and providing these abortions. 
Well, thank you, Mark. That was a very emphatic and rousing speech that I hope our listeners will take to heart. Thank you to both of you for being here. And thank you to both of you for your great reporting on this topic. Thanks so much, Susan. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening and for being a Slate Plus member. We'll be back next week. <laughs>